Hi, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Barbara Shockett. She is the author of Don't Think Twice. It's about adventures in healing at 100 miles an hour, and I'm delighted to have her on the show today. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Let's talk about the initial setup of how everything happens here. Basically, it sounds like in those opening chapters, your life just completely falls apart in the space of a few quick months. Well, first I went to uh, work at Paramount Pictures like I always do, or always did. I got called into the big office, and they said that they loved my work, which is always a sign that you're in trouble. But they were merging with DreamWorks, and they were bringing in another writer to take my place. And I needed to be gone within two weeks. So I went back to my office, and I burst into tears. You know, I I was 49 at the time, and trying to find a writing job in Los Angeles is really tough. So I loved my job, and all of a sudden, it was gone. Then a week later, my girlfriend of six years ran off with her hairdresser. So a relationship ended very quickly, right after I lost my job. And then about, I think it was three or four months, I can't remember exactly, my mom calls one Friday afternoon and said that she had pancreatic cancer, and she died the following Monday. That was the final blow. What was it that you turned to to sort of dig yourself up out of that hole? Well, I tried a lot of different things, and friends were freaking out because, I mean, a lot happened to me, and I was very depressed. I kind of lost all the people that I knew myself to be. I mean, I used to be a writer, an employed writer, and then I was somebody's lover, and I was I had a mom. And now I was an adult orphan because my father had died many years before that. So I was somebody else, and I, I didn't even know who I was when I looked in the mirror. So people were freaked out, and they were leaving crystals in my mailbox, and they were giving me massages and trying to coax me out of the house. And finally, I just thought, you know, I got to do something something crazy. Anyway, in the meantime, right after my uh, mom died, uh, I turned 50 less than a month after burying her. So my sisters decided that they wanted to celebrate my birthday, and I, I did not want to celebrate anything, but they whisked me off to Las Vegas. And while I was there, I was up in my hotel room, and I'm looking down off of my balcony, which I felt like jumping off of. I'm looking down at this massive traffic jam on the Strip. And I see in the distance a single headlight weaving past everyone. And I thought, wow, that's how I'll get over this mess. That's how I'll rebalance my life or, or die trying. That was really the emphasis of how motorcycles got into my head. And then, of course, it turns out that it's not just as easy as getting a motorcycle. And Well, first of all, you got to get a license. So when I got back to Los Angeles, I took a three-day motorcycle course. That kind of prepares you for nothing except for you know how easily it is to be killed. They really browbeat that into you. And where you're supposed to occupy uh, a space on the highway so that you'll be seen and that nobody's going to see you anyway. It's really, they really scare you. But you are then able to go get a license. And once you have a license, you can buy a bike. And so what I did is I bought a, a used Honda Rebel, which is a little 250 uh, motorcycle. And it's like one step up from a Vespa. And I drove it all around Los Angeles, put about 100 miles on it, and got unbelievably bored because I needed more power. I went on the freeway, and I, I, was, getting, I was getting blown around because it was just too small. I then had the mechanics of riding a bike down, 
but I needed more power and speed, so I started looking on eBay for a bike. And where did you find it, the one that you ended up getting? <laughs> I found it in Buffalo, New York. I mean, I was looking locally at first, but, you know, you start looking elsewhere, and I saw this beautiful bike with a teal tank and maroon pinstriping, and it was a Harley Sportster, which certainly would have the power I wanted. It was a little bit more power than I wanted. I was looking for a smaller engine, but this is the bike I fell in love with. And it was on sale for, I forgot how much it was. I called up the, the person. I uh, emailed the person. It was being sold by two guys named Dave. I later in the book will differentiate these two Daves by calling one Rolling Stone Dave because he always wore a Rolling Stone t-shirt and the other one Shaggy Blonde Dave because he looked like a golden retriever. That's, I, I got a buy it now price. I made a virtual deal and I just flew to New York and was ready to ride it home. But when I got there... Uh, to be honest, they wouldn't sell me the bike because they realized how inexperienced I was and what I was going to do. And they wouldn't sell it to me. So they kept me there for three days and taught me how to ride it. And that was like one of the first examples of something that you found out a lot on uh, on your journey as you drove, you drove, now you drove the bike or you rode the bike back from Buffalo to L.A., and, right. and which is the basis of the memoir. Right. One of the things that you found out from the Daves is there really is this kind of like solidarity and community. Bikers, particularly the Harley owners, as, as the Daves were and you were now. Mm-hmm. I was a hog. Yeah, that they were really looking out for each other. And they, in order to let you become a hog, they had to look out for you too. Exactly. And there was an incident on the road, actually, when I pulled over because my knees were just melting down. This wasn't too long after I was on the road. I can't remember when it was. It's in the book somewhere. But anyway, I pulled over to just stretch. And in a couple of seconds, I realized I wasn't alone. All these Harleys pulled over, too, a a big group of them. And uh, I was a little freaked out. They just pulled over to see if I was okay, which is really kind of cool. I mean, I was standing among a bunch of pretty rough-looking people. But all they meant to do was to see if I was all right. It was sweet, actually. That incident kind of highlights something that happens a lot in the book, which is that, I mean, like like I said, there's a lot of people who were very, you know, who were very open, very friendly, uh, who were willing to look out for you on the basis of nothing else that you were a hog, that you, that you were riding a, a cycle. And a woman. And they, a woman. They really got off on the fact that I was a woman on a motorcycle. Every time I took off my helmet, Somebody wanted to talk to me. What becomes really clear, you know, as you're going through the story is that you were you you weren't really ready for that. No. <laughs> I I really to be honest with you, I, I kind of had a death wish. I didn't care whether I came back. I just wanted to divert my mind from all that was going on in my life. And one of the best ways to divert your to divert grief is to focus on something else. I focused on staying alive. It's interesting because I had a death wish, but I was really searching for a life wish. I mean, the the great thing about this trip was all I had to think about was staying upright and getting to the next town that I was going to stop and looking at every nook and cranny in the road, making sure that I didn't hit something. It really, it, it healed me because by the time I got back, I mean, I thought I could do anything. Part of finding that life wish, as, as you call it, it was really about growing up, in a way. I mean, Big time, yeah. Yeah. I mean, ironically, here it is. It's your 50th year, mm-hmm. and you're realizing that it's like, okay, I've got to become an adult now. Yeah, I'm nobody's little girl anymore. My mom and dad were gone. My sisters were all married and into their families, and I was by myself. And I 
I am uh, the youngest of, of four daughters, four years, eight years, and 12 years older than me. So there's a lot of distance in between us. And I was like babied a lot. I mean, true, I was an adult and I'd had many life experiences. I'd never been hit like this with so much at once. It really made me think, okay, you've got to grow up and handle this. In fact, I, I remember sitting on my front porch, still the little girl, crying. And it was on the morning of my mom's death. I'm sitting there drinking a shot of scotch, trying to calm myself. And I felt like I wanted to, I wanted to say, look at this. Look at mom. I'm handling this grief, okay? Look at me. Look at me. I'm still the little girl. I grew up on that bike. Mm-hmm. I basically grew up on that bike. I had to think fast a lot of times. I had to handle things myself. And I was completely alone because I didn't tell my sisters, or really anybody except for my niece and a couple of friends, that I was doing this. One of the things that was interesting to me in terms of the writing of this, as you just talk, write about being out, out on your own, you mentioned this a little bit at the very beginning, and then there's a scene in the middle of the, of the story I mean, there's basically a point at which, I mean, you know, you start out driving from, you know, you start out riding from Buffalo. You're taking pictures the, all the way. And then at some point... A couple of pictures. A couple of pictures. Not too many. Hmm. I erased them all, though. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, <laughs> that's what I was getting to, is that, you know, you erased all your pictures. And at the beginning of the book, you mentioned how it's like, you also, like, burned all your notes and stuff. Everything. Well, Everything. I didn't really have many notes. I was just was kind of writing to myself. I had no idea that I was going to write a book. So when the time comes, like... Not quite ten years later, I guess. Mm-hmm. I and mean, you all, you, literally, all you have to rely on is your memories. Yes. You mention how you actually went out and sort of like redid the route two or three times by car. I have since done not the exact same route, but I've since gone across from New York to California again, just recently on something called the Sister Centennial Ride. But I did that with a group of people. But I did go by myself again across the country, stopping at all the places that I went to and. Just remembering. Then I took notes. Yeah. Didn't take any pictures because it seemed... Well, I actually did take some pictures, but it's it didn't seem right to put them in the book because it's not when I took the trip. And those memories were still pretty solid in your... I mean, you know, it was a transformative journey for you. So those memories were there. Yeah, I mean, going back to those places, you know, spurred them you know, to the forefront, I guess. But it's... Mm-hmm. A, I mean, it sounds like a journey like this isn't something, you know, you easily forget. No, and, and also a lot of the book is a, is about growing up mm-hmm. in El Paso, Texas, a Jew in El Paso, Texas. Friends and, and classmates would tell me I was going to hell all the time. You know, it's it's there's a lot in there. There's a couple of heavy chapters where some intense stuff happens. And, you know, when something is, is transformative, like you said, you don't forget it. You really don't forget it. Now, now of course, conversations and stuff like that, I had to recreate. Um, you can't get that down exactly. Some I probably got pretty exact, but you had to recreate a lot. Now, when you were retracing your steps, did you see a lot of the same people? No, it was 10 years later. I did see the Daves again. Sadly, uh, Rolling Stone Dave had prostate cancer. I think he's still kicking. I think he lives in Florida now. And Shaggy, Shaggy Blonde is, was still there, too. I did go to the Red Roof Inn where I tried to find the woman I called Mother Teresa. I never knew her real name. I called her Mother Teresa, and I tried to find her to thank her, but I, I couldn't find her. I mean, I described the situation and described what she looked like, but uh, I couldn't find her. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the junk man, he wasn't there anymore, probably stoned out of his mind still somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to find people ten years later. So what was the spur that got you thinking about 
writing a memoir? Well, I came back, and, you know, you think you can do anything when you have a, a big trip like this. But the fact of the matter was, I still had no job, and I was still in Los Angeles where they worship youth, and I was 50 looking for a job, and I still had no lover. You know, it's really hard to look for somebody online or even to go to parties when the first question that they ask you is, what do you do? And I couldn't even answer it. I was unemployed and still a little heartbroken. And so I'm thinking, oh, what can I do? I decided to not really write a book, but to get a Ph.D. Because years and years earlier, I had started to get a Ph.D. in Denver, Colorado, at uh, Denver University in creative writing. I didn't finish it for several reasons, um, which I don't know if, they're, if it's relevant right now. You touch upon some of it in the story. Well, basically, <laughs> um, I was going to um, take my orals. I'd really done all of the classwork in Denver. And uh, I found out that one of my professors on my graduate committee on my uh, orals committee, where they test you at the, right. at the end, mm-hmm. for my orals, was homophobic. And I was with a, a person who was a, in a, who was a kind of a public figure, and she was not out. And I thought, God, if I, if I, get, if I don't pass my orals, and I think it's because this guy just funked me for that reason, I'd have to take the school and him to court, and then my girlfriend would be exposed, and it was just too much, so I just quit, much to the chagrin of my folks, my parents. Years later, they had already died, and uh, I had just gotten back from this motorcycle trip, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to go get my Ph.D. There's another adventure I can do. And I thought, and I'll do it in another country. Yeah, that, that would be something exciting. So, I, of course, the only country I could do it in would be England or maybe Ireland, you know, where they speak English. Mm-hmm. So I went to Lancaster, England. I applied to a bunch of programs, and I got accepted by Lancaster uh, University by this wonderful professor, Dr. Graham Mort. And he writes back, and and I said, because you have to write a reflective thesis and a novel. And so I wrote a novel. Uh, I I said I was going to write a novel, and I told him what it was going to be about, and I was going to write about this trip and turn it into a novel. And that way I I could just wing out and tell all kinds of stories. It would be fun. So I got into this program. I went there, and I started this book. I wrote, wrote it as a novel, and I wrote the reflective thesis. I got my Ph.D., and then I finally got an agent for the novel, and we were marketing it around, and somebody, two people, two editors said, you know, this sounds like a true story. Is it true? And I said, well, yeah, it's, it's based on, on fact. And they said, well, can you rewrite it as a memoir? And I had to take out a lot of really fun stuff that I had made up, but that's how it became a memoir instead of a novel. It's just, I was sort of fascinated by that process when you're writing it, when you're taking, like, a real life experience like that, and, and first you're transmuting it into fiction, mm-hmm. and, and adding all these things, and then somebody comes along and says, "There's a real life story in there. Maybe you should tell that." Tell the truth. Tell, tell the truth. That whole process of sort of like going in, and, and as you say, like taking out a bunch of stuff. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. It was hard, but also in a sense, taking out all the sort of maybe shields isn't quite the right word, but all of these you know buffers that sort of like. So it didn't hurt anybody's feelings, like my sisters? <laughs> or even your own. Oh. Right, it's true. I mean, I was. I figured as a novel, I could bash myself easily, and, and it's a character, and mm-hmm. nobody would... I mean, they might think it was me, but it's not me, because mm-hmm. her name was Edie Rysokin. That was the name of the character, and uh, which is a, a Russian name I found, which means uh, at the fork in a river, because that's how I... 
felt my life had gone to. But anyway, yeah, it's true. You need to, I had to send this book to everybody that was really in it to make sure that they were okay with what I said. I had to send it to my sisters, a couple of them, you know, wanted this word changed and that word changed, and can you can you not make this sound so bad? And I didn't really sound that way, was I? That mean? And, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I did all of the changes for them. But in a novel, of course, um, I could always tell my sisters, it's not you, it's a character. And was there anything, once you started reshaping it as a memoir, anything that you decided to confront that you hadn't confronted when it was a novel? I think you're probably talking about what happened in college. But maybe I, I did not. I, I wasn't. Sure, I didn't know if that was in the novel or not. But that uh, was in the novel. Okay. That was in the novel. Was it in the novel? God, you know, I, I'm. It was so long ago. I think it was in the novel. It may not have been exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we t- we actually touched upon this a little bit earlier in the conversation when you were talking about um, growing up Jewish in Texas. Mm-hmm. And there's some. We'll probably end up saving a lot of this for the readers to discover, but there's some very traumatic stuff in here. Right. My college, unbeknownst to me, was right in the heart of Ku Klux Klan territory, the Ozarks. It was in Columbia, Missouri, and there were Klansmen. In fact, in Missouri, there is a billboard that is donated or adopted by the Klansmen, and the ACLU represented the Klansmen for their right to do that, which is astonishing to me. But... You know, I mean, God bless America. Yes, I I experienced uh, some intense anti-Semitism, which you can read about in the book. Now, in your life, you know, as you say, you've you've done this trip a couple of times uh, by car and by cycle. You went up, you went back, you got your PhD. You're living in New York now. So, how better are things now than if the if the, the if the Point was Do that I have a death wish anymore? <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, how's your life wish coming? Or let's let yeah, let's frame it positively. How's your life wish coming? Well, you know, I got a, a book published by Putnam. That's a biggie. So that was something. But to be honest with you, I still have not gotten back on the wagon of uh, relationships. I've tried, but I was just so shaken. I think when when a lot happens to you at once, and and having my lover leave me a week afterwards, I was just thrown off balance to, to you really start to fear that kind of pain again and uh, I do go out I do try but I have to tell you that's one area of my life that has not changed and I would like to see it changed I think I'm open enough now to relationships I don't think I'm so afraid anymore but I don't know I kind of like being on my own and uh, in terms of adventures and things like that I I'm starting another book now and that's the next adventure it has nothing to do with motorcycles it really has a lot to do with why I'm in New York and why I continue to move a lot and I'm hoping that I stay in New York I think it's I think I continued I'm literally a wandering Jew I think I move so many times. I think I've moved 15 times to six or seven different states and to three countries. I just haven't settled anywhere. And I I think I'd really like that part of my life to change too. I love New York and I want to stay here. So I need to find a job and make that happen or write another book so that I don't have to find another job. Well, that would be a book to look forward to, to, to hear what you're, you're settling in New York. In the meantime, we have Don't Think Twice, uh, Adventures in Healing at 100 Miles an Hour. I've been talking with its author, Barbara Shockett, and you have been listening to Life Stories. If you've enjoyed the podcast, 
please head over to iTunes where you can rate and review it, give it a bunch of stars, say nice things about it. And that just makes it easier for other people to find it and listen to it as well. And if you subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, you'll also be alerted whenever new episodes go online. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for joining me today, and I'll look forward to sharing another interview with you again soon. Take care.